Welcome to episode 10 of the Circles Off podcast. I'm Rob Pizzola, joined fr- by Johnny from Betstamp. And the reason it's kind of weird now is because I'm also Rob from Betstamp now as of as of this week. Um, for those that, that don't know, I, I made a public announcement, uh, which is pinned to my Twitter profile, at Rob Pizzola, uh, just announcing that I am joining forces with the Betstamp team. Um, which has been something that's kind of been brewing. And I think probably a lot of people who have been listening to this podcast or following my Periscopes maybe have seen the the writing on the wall. Uh, but I encourage you just to give it a watch, seven minutes long. Uh, it's pretty, I want it to be pretty transparent and I guess brutally honest about my my position in life, where I stand right now, You know what motivates me, what I want to do. I think I accomplished that in that video, but I'm uh, I'm excited to be joining the team, Johnny. Hey, everybody. Uh, hey, Rob. So yeah, we got Johnny from Betstamp now joined by Rob from Betstamp. Uh, it's good. It's excited. We I, I put out a post saying you know we sign unrestricted free agent Rob Pizzola. So I, th- I think it was a good signing. We um, you know our buddy Joey Joey Kanish there. He said it reminded him of when the Redskins signed Albert Hainsworth. We can't we can't say Redskins anymore. The Washington yeah, football team. No, I, I was the Redskins at the time, but yes, the, the football team signed uh, Albert Hainsworth, and uh, and then I told him, "What about this one?" And it was Jeff Finger. <laughs> so I was like, "That that has to be the worst signing in NHL history, at least for Leaf fans." Yeah, a, a, a lot of people will have no idea what we're talking about, but because we we both grew up uh, in in the Greater Toronto area, the Jeff Finger one hits really close to home, and and for those who are like. You don't have to know anything about hockey, but it's commonly believed that that the Leafs signed the wrong free agent. Uh, that that Cliff Fletcher, who was their general manager at the time, offered a contract to the wrong guy, which has been sort of corroborated by some other sources, but some others have denied it. So we'll kind of never know. But if a lot of Leafs fans that day were left scratching their head at this Jeff Finger signing. Uh, and certainly, at least it wasn't one of those where it's like a long-term deal where you're paying a guy six or seven million. Uh, there's been some some bad ones of those that I can think of. You know, I, I mentioned the Jamarcus Russell um, <clears throat> rookie contract, I believe it was, which was just like an absurd amount of guaranteed money because the guy could throw like 70 yards from his knees. I, I mean, he was a highly touted prospect. I get it, but it's that was like such a classic Raiders move in the NFL as well. Yeah, so if, if the Rob signing doesn't work out, then I'll have to say that I, I thought I signed the wrong guy. I meant to, meant to sign somebody else. <laughs> uh, I so mean, yeah, there, is, there is a Rob Pizzo out there who I, who I used to sign Rob Pizzo. I used to work with Rob Pizzo. So um, I met Rob Pizzo at the score. The first time I ever went into the score studios, he's the first person that, that greets me when I walk in and shakes my hand. And I'm inter- I'm about to intern there at the time. And he shakes my hand and he's like, Rob Pizzo. And I'm like, P- P- it's Pizzola. He's like, no, it's Pizzo. And it's like this Abbott and Costello routine going back and forth. I'm like, I'm like, it's Pizzola, right? Like I'm laughing because I'm like, this guy's trying to tell me what my own name is. <laughs> and and there's someone else, and I, I can't remember his name because he was like an intern at the time who who didn't last long. He was just there for like a couple of weeks, just dying of laughter, like watching this entire thing unfold in front of his eyes. And he stepped in and he's like, you're Rob Pizzola, you're Rob Pizzo. And we had a pretty good laugh about that. But uh, I don't know what Rob Pizzo is doing nowadays. I think he's still with CBC, Canadian Broadcast Corporation or something, but I haven't talked to that guy in a while. That was that was one of the, like I grew up, so I'm, I'm going off on tangents very early this week, but um my name's obviously Robert. So is my my dad. My dad's named Robert. Um, so it, it's very like traditional Italian to be named after your grandfather. So my my grandfather's name was um, their names were Angelo and Vincenzo. Uh, my mother didn't really like those names. So in order to like not really hurt my grandfather's in any way, uh, they named me Robert after my dad. So my dad could say like, I wanted him to have my name and my middle name is Angelo, Robert Angelo Pizzola. So it was kind of like a, like this, you know, smaller gift to to my late grandfather. But I grew up just getting confused with my dad all the time because we're both Robert Pizzola. Like this is, was such a horrible idea. Don't name your kids after you in general, because 
like my phone bills would go to him somehow. His would go to my to me. Um, people would call the house asking for Robert and or Rob, and like we had no idea who it was for. They're horrible. And then I kind of like got over this over time, especially when I was starting at the score. I moved out of the house. I, I didn't have to deal with this stuff anymore. And then I encounter Rob Pizzo, who has pretty much the exact same name, and people are always getting us confused. Like I'm getting messages on Twitter, oh, like great job on this show. And I'm responding. I'm like, no, that was Rob Pizzo. And he had to deal with the same thing. So it's kind of funny how that worked out for pretty much my entire life in some capacity with me always being confused with someone else. Anyways, we should just call it. We should start calling you junior. We should start calling you junior. That, that, that was an option, but I was very close with a guy named Bruno growing up and Bruno's dad was also named Bruno. So we called Bruno Jr. So there was no opportunity for me to be junior. Like this is what happened, right? It's just, oh man. Italian, the just, Italian family lifestyle. That's how I, I literally, I, I had conversations with my dad's friends on the phone for like two or three minutes before they recognized that they were talking to me, which was always like the most awkward ones. Cause they, you pick up and be like, Hey Rob, you know, like, and just go right into a conversation right away. And like, Finally, I have to wait for wait for like a pause, and say, "Oh, I think you're looking for my dad," and like hand off the phone. And there was like, they're like, "Oh, so people stop making that mistake after a while." But yeah, okay. So Rob, uh, so Rob's joining Betstamp. Uh, he's going to be basically helping with uh, total business development for the app. Um, we obviously have really high hopes for the platform, and we we want to be a an amazing next level tracking tool for everybody to use and find utility in, uh, whether it be odds comparison, bet tracking, following along live, uh, cool analysis. We have a lot of things coming down the road, and, and then second and, and arguably first, we also want to be the the source of, of verification. Um, so you know, bringing on Rob uh, to help in that capacity, and we're excited to obviously grow this brand. Uh, but this is a sports betting podcast. Not a, it's powered by Betstamp, but it's not a Betstamp podcast. So let's get into, um, I guess, our, our betting weeks. How was your uh, How was your week last week? Uh, man, I make the same mistakes over and over and over. Like, I, I can't. I, there's a band that I listen to, which probably you've never heard of because you're younger than me. But they're called Three Eleven. They have a song called Same Mistake Twice. There's like a lyric that that sticks with me. It's one thing to make the same mistake twice. It's another thing to make it all of your life. I always handle late season in the sports that I bet on very poorly. And I feel like I get into every season and I say, this year might be different. And it's not. And late season NHL for me, for whatever reason, I've never really been able to figure it out. I think the dynamic changes in the league across the league very, very quickly. Uh, and I'm just never quick enough to adapt. So I kind of said that this year before the trade deadline, oh, I'm going to take it a little bit easier with NHL, start scaling back risk. I wake up one day, I see a bunch of edges. I'm like, all right, that's it. Like we're going for this. Let's fire or whatever. And I mean, I had a losing week last week. Um, and it's just like, I don't know what I, 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 I have to get out of this this mold of like thinking I can just continue on doing this. And and I know friends that bet NBA as well. I know John, you bet some NBA, but they kind of tell me the same thing about the NBA late season. It's just so much tougher. You never have any, any idea when guys are resting or not. I don't know how applicable that is to this year versus past years, but yeah, late season in, in a lot of sports, it's just, um, I know that I should be scaling back risk, especially when I'm having like a good season in general or I'm profitable but I, I just never seem to be able to to follow through on that. Yeah, we talk a lot on this podcast about like uh, basically finding edges in the way the new season unfolds. So like a different rule change or something like that style of play. Obviously, when the season starts, you have a handful of guys on new teams, every sport, handful of new coaches, new rosters, new new formats, new divisions, everything. Not even just in 2020 and 2021. So it makes sense that as the season goes along, um, and basically everybody has more data. Um, the originators are obviously getting more data and sharper. So they're able to originate a better line. Uh, but what's not really factored in is the sports books also have all of that data coming in for the full season that they now have. So 
when the season now like is in the last like three weeks, forget about all the injuries or extra things or the last month of the season, you now have three, four months of history, uh, of people betting heavy into these sports books, into pinnacle, into Chris, where they now have even sharper profiles. They know who's been winning this season. Um, it's a lot, a lot harder to win near the end of the season at scale. Um, and it's a lot harder to win just in general, because as soon as a game closes, uh, at one price, now that is new info. It's into the market that the bookmaker has for a reopen. So in theory, every single day that goes by, um, for the season, the line gets sharper. And then to reset the new season, you know, they take a step back and then a couple, you know, teeny tiny all the way forward to the end of the season. Makes sense, Rob? Like, is that how you see it too? Well, for sure. I mean, I, I think that's what has made the NHL just tougher in general this year is because teams are playing each other uh, twice in a row, three times in a row, sometimes even more than that sometimes. And if the first game line ends up being an efficient line, that's where they're opening it the, the next time around. And you, you've lost an edge in some capacity. So um, I think just in general, that applies, like, especially for those that are continuously betting on screen. And when I say betting on screen, I'm, I'm talking about um, affecting the market, whether that's through through Pinnacle or Bet Chris. But the information provided those to those books is going to is going to sharpen the lines going forwards. So for sure, I think that there's some something to that. For me, uh, I think one of the biggest challenges I face is the dynamic late season dynamic for different sports or different leagues is not consistent at all. So just to give you an example, um, like late season NFL, you're typically going to find value on the biggest underdogs because you kind of have like this built-in narrative in the NFL that, well, you know, the Jets are not playing for anything. This other team needs to win to make the playoffs and you get these inflated lines, right? Because we know how much uh, public money can influence the NFL just in general in some cases, um, especially some high handle events. Um, so just in general, especially at the recreational shops, they're going to be flooded with, um, you know, a lot of action on the side that quote unquote needs to win or is playing for something. And you find value in, in the underdog if you're if you're modeling those games. Um, and if you look at historical results, that's been highly successful late in year. Week 16, 17 of the NFL, if you're betting on teams that have nothing to play for and you've been consistently doing that now for a decade, two decades, you've done fairly well. The NHL is not like that at all. Teams that are eliminated from the playoffs, they dip off like a cliff at some point where they have nothing to play for and it really feels like they have nothing to play for. And if you're someone that's modeling that sport, especially if you're looking at longer samples, it's going to take your model quite a while to catch up to that. Um, and, you know, I kind of encounter this every year where it's just, I, I kind of just have to make subjective calls at some point of, I actually don't trust this number anymore. Like I'm not betting the New Jersey Devils today, even though I'm showing fair value or good value on them, just because I have like a very low degree of confidence in that number. A team that's in a playoff spot, battling for a playoff spot, which is Pittsburgh versus New Jersey, who, I mean, the season might as well be over for them at this point. So the dynamic for different sports uh, changes, and I think that plays into it as well. But yeah, I mean, uh, next year, I'm telling myself this now, next year post-deadline, golf courses are going to be open. I'm just going to try to get out every day and not be around a computer because uh, this has been a, a consistent trend for me for years now. And uh, I need to listen to my own advice sometimes. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty fair to everyone who's um, to listening. I think if you're still beating the closing line, like then this argument, like at this time of the year, then um, it's still fine. Like you're still going to be profitable there. Uh, I'm, what I'm saying is it's a little harder to originate. It's harder to beat the closing line. Lines are much tighter. So you look at a sport like baseball, you'll find a lot of people like in July and August, they lose any profits they may have uh, accumulated from the opening end of the season. And that just is more uh, strength towards this point that every game day, every game data point that comes in uh, makes the line more efficient for the sports book. So in a, in a sport like baseball, we have over 160 games per year. Uh, teams are playing, you know, almost every single day. Um, by the time you have three months of data in play, like the lines aren't moving much from open to close, um, except really on like roster adjustments mm -hmm. and injuries. And and outside of those two, like 
it's tough to like make a better uh, or to originate a better line than the sports book or the, the main sports books on major league baseball. That's actually um, a really good piece of advice just in general about still being very cognizant of the closing line. So if I, if I can give a personal example, I, I first seriously started betting on hockey in 2016 and I had about a 15% ROI before the NHL trade deadline and about a minus 5% ROI afterwards. But you don't have much of a sample after the trade deadline because it's a much smaller portion of the season. So it was hard for me to judge whether I was doing something right or wrong. So we go to 2017 and I pretty much put together the exact same type of season. I think I had like 13 or 14% ROI before trade deadline, negative 5 or 6% ROI afterwards. So now we got something that's been consistent for two years. So I start breaking it down and I'm looking at my closing line value post trade deadline and it's worse than it was pre. So now I start breaking those down individually. Where am I not getting closing line value? The big underdogs. I'm betting these teams plus 200 consistently after the deadline, plus 220, plus 250, and market's either not moving or it's moving against me. So right away, that's telling me that I'm probably not accounting for something that someone else who's a market maker is accounting for. So I started looking into how teams that are eliminated from the playoffs um, fare versus market expectations, and it's actually quite poorly. So I started applying a motivational adjustment later on in the year, which I still do now. But I, I mean, it's variable year by year. Things change. This is kind of like an anomaly of a season, uh, just like with what's going on with the COVID landscape. So I probably should have uh, taken a little bit easier. But that was the first thing that alerted me to there being something some factor I'm not accounting for. And whether or not you believe in beating the close, I know that there are some people that they just kind of laugh it off depending on what sport they're betting on. There's some people that just don't believe in it altogether. But I think even if you don't believe in it, you might be able to glean something from it in general. You might be able to say somebody's accounting for this and I can dig into it and figure out whether I should be or not. Uh, And for me, that was like a... like one of the first true learning experiences where I was like, I, you know, I felt like I reverse engineered somebody else's model without even knowing what they were doing and improved my model overnight. 100%. And if you don't believe in closing line value um, and you think you have good stuff, you, you pretty much have now almost unlimited liquidity. So if you're going to go against somebody else's theme, uh, a bigger mover that might have a, a, a bigger bankroll. Now you're going to be tapped out on your liquidity. So in theory, like knowing what the line's going to close at is valuable in, in all instances, whether you believe that it's efficient or not, it's still valuable to know what it's going to close at and to track your progress against that closing. But anyways, that's a discussion for another day. I think this is a good transition because we're talking now about sports that have tons of data points, like major league baseball every day, full yep. slate of games. Um, and what we're going to transition into now is actually something that has like essentially five data points in lifetime, <laughs> which is, which is the, the wonderful world of celebrity boxing, Jake, the problem child, Paul versus former Bellator and one FC champion, funky Ben Askren coming off his hip surgery and looking like a milk bag on stage. <laughs> so so we, we wanted to break this down. Uh, this is one of these things where um, I heard the head trader of Pinnacle, uh, Marco Bloom, uh, on the Pinnacle podcast a while back. And somebody asked him about the uh, one of the, the, I think it was about the Logan Paul versus KSI boxing match, number one, when they had that. Mm-hmm. And they said, how do you guys make the lines for these? Like, how do you know? Like, who, what goes into this? And he said, to be honest, a couple of guys sit in a room and we come out with a number and that's it. And we don't take much limits on it. So it's all good. I forget exactly what he said. I don't want to like mess up his words, but I think what he was getting at was they, they don't, they don't know if it's going to be a good line or not. They're putting out something. They're going to let the action dictate it. They're not taking a big handle and they're going to let it go. But the difference with this fight was um, I follow boxing for a while. I'm a big fan of uh, MMA and, and, a minor fan of boxing because I, I think the sport is, is pretty subpar to MMA right now, but overall, like this was like, I think from what I can remember, this is the highest limits I've ever seen on a boxing match. 
Um, and it was this thriller produced Jake Paul versus Ben Askren fight. So all of the old oh, small limit hundred dollar things kind of go out the window. And now this thing's really being like, there's no originators that are going to say this. This is a matter of like opinion versus opinion. Yep. People are betting high money on this. Yep. And obviously these lines are not closing anywhere near as efficient to any other market that you'd be betting on. So it's a cool opportunity. I wanted to get your thoughts first and I can share my opinion on what, what I think of this whole thing. Well, for sure, you can throw the efficiency of these markets right out the window. Like we, we can look back to what uh, Floyd Mayweather or Conor McGregor closed at and that would be like, uh, like you'd laugh at, at what the prices were on that fight. And I, like I, I bet a lot of Mayweather in that fight, right? But there was so, me- so much money from the average better, recreational better that convinced themselves that McGregor had a chance in that fight that the line actually moved towards McGregor, which in hindsight, like I'm still, I'm still trying to believe how this, like a, one of the best boxers, if not the best boxer of all time against an MMA fighter in a boxing match closed with, with one of the fighters with like an, with Mayweather's implied probability at like 75%. I think he was like a minus two, 200 or 220 around that range. I think it was higher, but like I, I was betting because I remember I first started betting minus 500 thinking like this is an absolute gift. Like we're talking a 99% chance at the bare minimum that he wins this boxing match. And then like the line is just moving against me. And I'm like, the first thing that goes through my head and maybe, you know, you bet the Askren fight. And and this is probably why I didn't have enough money on Mayweather, which I, I had a substantial amount of money. But the first thing that goes through my head when money starts coming in on McGregor is this fight is going to be fixed. Like there's nothing guaranteeing me that Mayweather is going to show up and not take a dive, especially when you started to consider. So one thing I started to do was start looking around and seeing what you could get down on that fight. And it was surprisingly way higher than I expected. And in some cases, like I could have called the local bookie if I wanted to. And not a lot of people have this op- op- option, but I could have got down just with one local 50K if I wanted to, because he was taking so much action on the fight as well. So I'm starting to think to myself, well, how much would Mayweather need to get to throw a fight? And the reality is, I don't think you can get to that number in the current market landscape. Like it's too important to him, right? To, to be undefeated. You're not going to lose to an MMA guy for what, like a couple million bucks, maybe a little bit more than that. Wasn't going to happen unless he was like really, really hurting. Um, so that's where I, you know, there was like another dynamic that came into play. And that's where I said, okay, I'm going to take some more liability on Mayweather to the point where I preach not, not ever betting to the point where you're uncomfortable. Again, I should sometimes always take my own advice, but I'll never forget that night because I was at a friend's wedding. And um, I wasn't watching the fight live and I was just getting round by round updates. And I got the first two round updates and I just had to turn off my phone because they were like, oh, McGregor's hanging in there. Like McGregor looks good. Did Mayweather train for this fight? Like Mayweather's throwing it. All the messages I was getting at once, I was so uncomfortable. But yeah, you're you're completely right. Like this is a matter of opinion, but this is a market. Um, these types of fights, especially, are markets that there's so many public betters involved and like casual money being thrown around that it's going to influence the line. Where if you do feel you have a strong edge, you might be able to capitalize on something like this more than any other event. Yeah. So I'll give great great points by Rob there. Um, I think the main thing that this has that no, that no other event has is that people who bet on this are not fans of boxing. They don't watch regular boxing matches. They don't know what the sport is. And I can tell you guys from experience in watching boxing that boxing is a sport. So boxing is not fighting. Fighting is a completely different thing. Boxing is one style of fighting that involves strictly punching and, and movement, right? So Kickboxing, for example, is also not fighting. Kickboxing is kickboxing, right? Jiu-jitsu, sorry, I was pronouncing it a little yep. weird, but is 
what it is, right? Judo is judo. You can't combine these and say like, oh, this guy's a judo champion. So he's going to be incredible at, you know, mixed martial arts. Sometimes right. yes, with the, with the right training. Yes. But in most cases, what I can tell you is boxing is boxing, meaning, um, a, there's a scoring system. So if the fight's going to decision, the technical boxers are almost always winning that. And, and there's so much, you know, wrong with judging and stuff in sports. But for example, you mentioned like, oh, Connor won the first two rounds. Like anyone who watches actual, the, the actual, like watch the fight knows that Connor won those first two rounds. Any casual fans like, yeah, Connor won those rounds. Check the scorecards after he actually lost all the rounds. <laughs> he didn't win those rounds. One judge had him winning one of the rounds. So you're laughing and saying like, oh yeah, they have a shot. But in reality, like the technical aspect of boxing, like the way, how the judging works, like it's going to be really tough for someone who's a traditional boxer to lose on points to someone who's like an MMA fighter or a celebrity. In this case, um, I'm going to, I'm going to say it like I, I bet, um, pretty big on Jake Paul. And the reason was because Jake Paul, people say, yeah, he's a YouTuber and he is, but Jake Paul is a boxer. He has been training strictly boxing for three years. He's been boxing, you know, if not every week, every, like every couple of weeks for three years, when he's in camp, he does a full boxing camp. Ben Askren, I, you'd call him an MMA fighter because he is, but he's primarily from a wrestling background. So when you're going to say like Ben Askren in boxing versus Jake Paul in boxing, it's a different fight than if they were to just fight straight up. Obviously yep. in a street fight, Ben Askren's going to win. He's going to wrestle him to the ground. Obviously in an MMA fight, it's, it's probably very likely that he wins that as well. But like, it's a different thing, right? So when people are talking like Connor versus Floyd, it's one thing as well that, you know, I've learned over the years. It's like Floyd is not going to lose that fight or, he, or, you know, he might, but he's not going to, he shouldn't have been as short priced as he is because he's a boxer and Connor McGregor is an MMA fighter, simply put. So in this scenario with Jake Paul, like he beat up Nate Robinson. He was minus 200. I absolutely unloaded on that line as well. I'm like, this is a, a joke of a line. Like Nate Robin, I heard in Nate Robinson didn't even spar. I'm like, this guy's never actually boxed in his life. Like, oh, he's going to get destroyed. And yeah. sure enough, he got absolutely lit up. That fight should have been stopped in like one round. And I guess Jake Paul got the highlight knockout in two. And then it's coming into like Ben Askren. This guy's a fighter. At first it was like, this guy's an athlete. He's going to beat Jake Paul, oh, but you yeah. know, he's not because Jake Paul's actually training and he's, a, he is a boxer. And then now with Askren, you're like, oh, he's a fighter. He's an actual fighter. He's been in there. He's been through a weight cut. He's done all these things. I'm like, yeah, he doesn't box, man. Like he's going to get lit up as well. And sure enough, he did. Now I'll be clear. I don't think Jake Paul is a championship level boxer. If you put Jake Paul in versus an up and coming boxer who is also a killer, then that's going to be a good fight. And now, you know, you're probably going to have Jake Paul as a big dog, but this kid has been boxing for three years consistently. He is at, at this point, you can consider him a professional boxer. It's very tricky for him because he's such a big personality and he's not known for his boxing. He came up as a YouTube star, as an influencer. So he can't, he didn't have the chance to fight those like tin can boxers yeah. on the way up and build a name for himself that way but he's still a legit boxer. Like he doesn't get as much respect as he should. It was very easy to handicap uh, these two fights. Right. Which brings us to uh, potentially Floyd Mayweather versus Logan Paul, which is, I typed this to you this morning. As soon as I saw the, the news on Twitter, I think my, my quote was, uh, I'm ready to unload, which is, I'm, I'm pretty sure was my exact quote, but like, yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm very interested to see, if like this gets a ton of pickup, I think it probably will. Cause I think that there's a Jake Paul now it will like it, it. So they had initially scheduled this fight for, I believe it was uh end of January, end of February and it got postponed. I think some, a couple articles came out citing like lack of interest. Logan Paul then claimed like they were just trying to get more people involved, make it a better deal, put some fans in the seats. So I think, you know, that's all, all good and well. I do think this is going to be a huge fight. A lot of people are going to watch it. Uh, the Jake Paul fight, I think, did 1.3 or something like that pay-per-view buys, which at a $50 price point. So these events, although people laugh at them and stuff, are more popular than, uh, I guess I'll call, I'll say every boxing match, but maybe with the exception of, you know, a Wilder Fury. But they're more popular than uh, something like a Canelo Alvarez versus Billy Joe Saunders, which is coming up and is like, no one's going to watch that fight. None of the mainstream people are going to talk about or cover that fight. Um, whereas these like Jake Paul, Logan Paul, KSI, Ben Askren, like these fights are getting the traction. So all in like, 
call it what it is. People say it's bad for the sport. People say it's good for the sport. The reality is it's getting the eyeballs. So I do think this one's going to be a similar uh, handle in terms of what people are going to get down on it. The issue is this one, I, I believe is an exhibition fight, not, right. uh, not a professional fight. So there might be some restrictions there. So you, got, you might get the Mike Tyson draw uh, that we got a couple months back, which was very clearly not a draw. So, so that one, by the way, you're going to laugh. That was on, that was the main event of the Jake Paul fight that morning. I messaged around a few partners and said, Hey, like anyone offering any, any books you see offering draw price for Tyson. Um, and we're laughing. I wasn't able to get anything down on it. because it wasn't being offered, uh, many places, but I had this feeling that I was going to draw because they literally said, we're not going to make a decision. Like there's going to be no knockouts. It's just going to be a fun match. I'm like, this is 100% going to draw. I can't, I can't wait for this. I, I mean, it It wasn't, it definitely wasn't a Tyson draw. Tyson won. Tyson like won. Like Tyson won every single round. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, think, get I think what happened was they, they're like, this fight is a draw. And then they went to Mike Tyson and he's like, what? And they're like, you, you, he's like, I'm good with that. Yeah, it, it's exactly what happened. Yeah. And they're like, Mike, but are they like, why? You think you should have won? He's like, yeah, I won the fight, but it's all good. It's like, I'm good with the draw. <laughs> the, the best was when... Um, the the best is when uh, it was Sugar Ray that he was fighting, right? Uh, uh, Roy Jones Jr. Roy Jones Jr. I'm, I, sorry, you can tell my boxing knowledge right here, and I never claim to be a boxing expert, so please don't hold. But it was Roy Jones Jr. Okay, I remember the post fight interview where he is talking to, to Roy Jones Jr. and he's like, "I gave you like a couple real shots in there, and you took them." And like, I respect you because you took them. But like, that's all you needed to know about that fight, right? Like Tyson went in there, he's sparring a little bit, but he tried to mix in like a couple bombs, which he did to the body. You could tell during the match. And he's like, you took them. I wanted to see if you could take them and you did. But I mean, it it is what it is. Like it's celebrity boxing. I, I made some commentary on uh, Twitter this week about the fact that like you get the boxing purists, right? That are like, this is a disgrace. Like, how could we be putting on these events and, and so on and so forth? And I, I understand that point of view, because if you're a, a traditional boxing fan and you're accustomed to seeing a certain type of product and you're watching it evolve into what you think is just like a spectacle, I get it. But people are talking about boxing, like even if it's not real boxing, like even if it's not to the standard that you expect. We're talking about boxing on a podcast. It's getting a ton of media coverage. Like, I watch soccer on the Zone all the time, and they're doing like their their promotional videos of of the like Triple G, who I've watched like once in my life, and like one of the best boxers on the planet. And like, there's nothing that's pulling me into the sport. But when stuff like this happens, and even if it's just at an entertainment level celebrity type of event. I'll tell you the possibility of myself getting into boxing is exponentially increasing just based off of what is essentially a joke of a fight. I get it. I completely get it. But like boxing is not growing. It's pretty much dying, especially with a younger demographic. Like there's certain sports that are dying with the younger demographic. Baseball is one. Tennis is another. And there's certain sports that are growing pretty rapidly. Basketball is one. Soccer, primarily because of the MLS, but boxing like needs some injection into it, like some life to get injected into it. And for me, this kind of stuff, I get it if you're a, a traditional boxing guy. Um, but I don't know. I I thought I think this this stuff is great for the sport, and you you might have a different perspective because you're you're definitely more into MMA boxing than I am. MMA and boxing, I should say, two different, entirely different sports. But for me, I don't know. I, I view this as a huge positive for the business. Yeah, I think it's either a positive or, or a direct indifference. So like the people who are watching that Triller fight that are uh, Jake Paul's fans, his YouTube subscribers, his Instagram fans, all of the you know people involved in that space, like they're not ever going to watch a match involving like someone like, for example, Badu Jack, who's like a, an amazing <laughs> boxer who's yeah. a championship level, um, like they're, they're never going to understand that name and have the respect for that. So I, I'm, I, I'm, o I'm only laughing by the way. I don't mean to cut you off because sometimes like the boxing nick nicknames, they just really, they really get to me like bad dude. Jack 
is such no, a no, great- no, that's his name. It's like it's not his nickname. It's like even even better. Even sorry, keep going. Uh, no, no worries. <laughs> but yeah, some some of them are, are 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 funny. But like for example, that guy was the he so the fight card that had Mike Tyson, the main event was Mike Tyson. The co-main event was Jake Paul. And the third fight to the end was Badu Jack. Now Badu Jack's one of the best boxers on the planet for his weight class. Amazing fighter, been in the game for a while. He would obviously be considered way more skilled, way more technical, a true boxer, right? He gets no attention. People are coming in and tuning in for the, the final two fights. They want to see Tyson back for the, you know, the media type stuff. And they want to see Jake Paul. So I don't think like you're going to convert as many fans as you think. But I think if you just take it for what it is, it's overall, it's good for the sport because more people are talking about actually boxing. And maybe from that, more kids who are maybe a fan of Jake Paul will get into boxing. So that's where I see it. Like, I don't think you're going to convert the Jake Paul's YouTube subscribers into being fans of, of Canelo Alvarez versus Billy Joe Saunders. But I do think you'll convert them into being more like bigger fans of Jake Paul. And as he continues to grow in the spot, he's, he's committed to the sport. He wants to box a really high level people. But the issue with him is like, he can't at this point in his career, he cannot box a true boxer. That is his level because that person has zero fame, zero clout, as you'll call it. And that fight won't really make sense for Jake Paul. He is so much bigger than I think he personally, I think he's bigger than everybody in boxing in terms of viewership, maybe with the, uh, like with you could take out maybe Joshua Wilder Fury. If you take out those three heavyweights and then Floyd Mayweather, who's retired, yeah. I don't think anybody. And I think you could even make the case for Jake Paul to be bigger than all of those guys, but you have Jake Paul. He's already bigger than all those guys. How can he go ahead and face uh, a mid-level fighter? That's a good fighter that has no name brand. That's not going to bring any like respect or any views to the, to the fight. He has to face another celebrity. He has to face his next fight's got to be like a Nate Diaz. Like he's calling out Dylan Dennis, um, who's, you know, Conor McGregor's training partner, a Bellator fighter, or he's got to eventually try to get that Conor McGregor fight. Cause that's going to be his biggest payday. So if I'm Jake Paul, like, no, I'm not going to fight good fighters that right. have no name brand that are not going to give me a payday and have a, a much higher chance of knocking me out. So the kid is doing it right. I, like, you yeah, can't... I get what you're saying. And it's interesting to me. So I used to be a huge MMA fan. Like I would never, I'd say from 2010 to 2015, 2016, I, I don't, didn't miss a UFC card. Uh, if I did, I, I watched the replay of it. Like I was huge into MMA. Um, I'm horrible with time in, in my head of, of like when certain things happen, but I remember when Kimbo Slice, rest in peace, uh, became a thing, right? Um, and like Dana White kind of jumped all over that. At, at first he was like, wow, Kimbo Slice is a joke or whatever, but like then he saw the money, the, the dollar signs in front of his head and they brought in like this street fighter basically into the octagon to fight. And like, I thought that was great for the UFC in general. Like, and I'm sure if you're an MMA purist at that time, you're like, get this, this bum out of the sport. Like, what is he doing in the octagon with like trained professionals type of thing? But to me that like, there was a lot of buzz around that at the time, huge buzz. And I, I, I get like Jake Paul's motivations will be a lot more different than Kimbo Slice. Like Kimbo Slice, a guy off the street, he's trying to, he's trying to make a buck however he can at that point. And, and like Jake Paul, it's, I mean, he's pretty huge following at this point. It's not like it's a massive factor. And I think fighting a pro boxer would certainly maybe derail that. But it would be interesting to see. And I think that would be really good for boxing in general. Um, but I don't know, it's just my two cents. On. Before we close it off, I want to say some, something else on like the Jake Paul and Logan Paul. Like it, people talk a lot of shit. People will say like, ah, oh, those guys are like, you know, overnight successes. They're like, you know, got famous or doing stupid shit on YouTube. Like I will tell you, like it, it's anyone, I guess anybody by sheer luck can get famous and be a one hit wonder musician, or can be something that, you know, something that pops off or have something, but to get that famous for, and stay that famous and relevant for that long is, is no joke. It's no accident. Like they are hardworking guys. Mm -hmm. So Jake Paul has all the money in the world right now. Like he doesn't need more money. He's not struggling for this. Like for him to want to spend three years and same with Logan Paul, because he's been training for about that same time, if not longer, um, consistent doing real fight camps, like for him to put in that sacrifice and actually go through a fight camp instead of going drinking, partying out with girls and stuff like that. Like he's making a choice to do that. He's a hardworking guy. He's dedicated to it. So when they're doing something, um, 
to reach the level of success that they've reached in YouTube influencer status is no joke. And if they want to replicate that in something else, there's a high chance that they can do that. Mm -hmm. So do I think that Logan Paul is going to beat Floyd Mayweather? No, absolutely not. But do I think Logan Paul would absolutely decimate any of the non-professional guys? Yes. So there's like talks like Evander Kane, who comes from a boxing family versus Logan Paul. Like obviously you'd have to see the training, but like Logan Paul is going to light that guy up if they fight. Um, based on the fact that he's doing the thing, right? Like Evander Kane's not training. He's playing hockey right now. Right. I, I was seeing, I, I saw a lot of um, Jake Paul, George St. Pierre rumors this week on Twitter. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. I, I don't either. GSP just went on Joe Rogan uh, last, maybe a week a week or two ago. Uh, he was talking about how, you know, he might come back for the, the Habib Nurmagomedov fight. Uh, in MMA, but the GSP is not a boxer anyways. That- no, exactly. He's just he's a guy that was always just straight away tried to take someone down and keep him on the ground and litter him with like GSP. To, he actually was. So when I first fell in love with MMA, GSP was like explosive. Like he could finish guys like those fights against Matt Hughes, man, like he was such a dangerous fighter. And then he reached probably like the midway point of his career, maybe after getting knocked out by Matt Serra, where he just completely devolved. I don't want to say devolved because he was still very dominant, but like pure wrestler, ground and pound, but not even like, not even, it's unfair to say ground and pound because there wasn't really many poundings that happened when he took guys down on the ground. It was like very much like he was trying to, to win on points a lot of times and he won a fight against Johnny Hendricks, which like he didn't win that fight and kind of got the benefit of the doubt later in his career just by like taking guys down and doing nothing uh, for a long time. But um, yeah, GSP as a boxer, I'm not uh, I'm not convinced that that's a, a great career move for him. No, no. And by the way, in terms of the Logan Paul Floyd Mayweather stuff, um, you're I, they did open up odds when it was initially posted. It was bet down. Uh, you could pick. You could have picked up Floyd in the range of like minus four fifty to minus five hundred, which I think you know is good. I know we don't give out picks or anything on this. Like I'm not giving out a bet or anything like that. But I think um, let's monitor that. See where it opens up. See where it goes to, and we'll touch upon that. I guess sometime before the fight, they announced it. Whatever it was, June or July. Um, we'll see where that moves, and then we'll, we'll do maybe another preview episode before where we can talk about some angles. Um, and what we look for. So like, for example, one thing I always look for in these scenarios is like, you have to know like which people to trust from the media and which people to like, are just trying to hype up the fight. So if you get an interview from someone who's in the camp and trying to hype it up, you throw that out the window. If somebody's looking at, for example, Jake Paul's footage of him boxing and they're a, a boxing expert or someone who's a former boxer and they're like, listen, I don't know this kid, but, and I'm looking at a hit, hit the bag. Like I haven't seen kids hit the bag like that at that age with that level of training for a while, this kid's legit. That might be something to look at versus, you know, someone who's in Ben or someone like Dana White, who's like, yes, Ben going to win this fight guaranteed. And it's like, well, he's just trying to, you know, back up MMA versus, you know, his sport that he built versus boxing. Anyways, let's move on from that celebrity boxing stuff, but it was very fun to talk about. We'll touch on it again, for sure. Um, I think the last thing we want to touch on in this podcast was, um, an educational topic that we teased on Twitter a little, which is betting parlays. And it's an extension to the podcast we did on the sports betting myths. But what we want to talk about here is why a parlay is not a bad thing. It has this negative connotation. Don't bet parlays. Parlays are for squares. They're for losing betters. Uh, but we're going to break down actually for anyone who doesn't know what a parlay actually is and then why it's not a bad thing. It can be, and it usually is, but yep. why fundamentally it's not. So Rob, if you want to kick it off. Yeah, so so I, let, let's touch on what you just ended with there. Now, the reason why people say don't bet parlays just in general um, is for a good reason. I mean, if you're looking, if you look at any sports book on the planet and you start looking at their hold and you break it down by the types of wagers. So you start looking at straight bets, or teasers, uh, buy points, parlays, like they're holding a lot more on parlays than they are on straight bets. In some cases, 10% more. In some cases, 20% more. 
There's a reason that they're doing that. The reality is that once you have somebody that's betting with negative expected value, I call them a coin flipper sometimes, there's a lot of, of terms for it, but someone who's a recreational better, casual better, that's not going to win in the long run. Once you they start quote unquote stacking games that now all need to win, they're taking what is negative expected value in the first place and making it even more negative expected value because now they're tying them all together. So a lot of people will say, don't bet parlays. It's probably really good advice for a lot of people. That doesn't mean that you can't win off parlays in general in the long run. I'm not saying just win one one parlay where you know, a six gamer shoot for the moon type of thing, but there are some general strategies and a couple things that I'll focus on later are some situations where you would almost exclusively want to bet a parlay rather than a straight bet. So just want to give people the background on that. It, it is definitely something you hear all the time. Like you're parlaying too much. You shouldn't parlay at all. That's not entirely true, but it, it in fairness, it is applicable for certain people. Yeah. So good, good point. So if I'm, if I were to break down what exactly a parlay is for anyone, I'll try to make it in simplest terms as possible. When, when you're parlaying something, let's say a two team parlay, all you're doing is betting one game. And if that game wins, you're rolling over your risk plus win amount on that game and cycling that through to the next game. So if you're betting plus a hundred in a parlay for $100, then what you've done is you've risked 100 for 100 to win on the second game. Now you have $200. So now you roll that forward and you can bet that on the next game. So if you go one and one in the first, if you go one and oh in the first game of the parlay, you have $200 now. And now you've put that 200 on the second leg of your parlay. And if that wins, now you have 400 in total that gets returned to you, which is why the true odds of a two-team parlay at plus 100 per side is plus 300. So if you need to rewind that, I guess it, like all you need to do, all you need to know really is all a parlay is, is you rolling over your potential winnings and putting that on the second game. Um, and that's it. So with that being said, if you have like Rob said, if you're a coin flipper and you have two plays that are both, you know, just recreational plays, negative expected value, and you parlay them, what you're doing now is compounding or betting double the amount on your negative expected value edge. If you have two positive expected value edges and you parlay them, now you're compounding uh, a good edge. So now you've actually done better in terms of expected value than straight betting those because you're able to get more down uh, using what I guess we'd call leverage right? Because you don't have to actually stake that $200. So in reality, uh, a parlay is not bad. There's nothing negative about it. Uh, making a bad bet or putting a bad bet into a parlay uh, is bad. Making a good exactly. bet and putting a good bet into a parlay is good, right? So um, that's, that's the just of it. Most people I've talked to do not know that that's the case. They don't understand that. I've been trying to kind of I guess we'll say educate on that topic, but if you can see, like, I, I guess let's, let's get into like, what are a good way? So where, where would you, like, you want to talk about maybe correlated parlays, like how that could be good? Well, that, that can be good, but they don't exist pretty much anywhere anymore. Like, it, and if they do, that edge dries up real quick. So when we talk, when we, we talk about correlated parlays, the best example I could use in my lifetime, which was essentially printing money was used to be able to bet a soccer draw and parlay it with under two and a half in a game. And that used to be hugely correlated because most soccer draws end up being 0-0 or 1-1. That's the by far the most likely outcome in a soccer game if the game is going to draw. So for about a year of my life, I was able to do that. And it was probably the best ROI I've ever had on anything in my life. Uh, I should have capitalized more on it. So that's just an example. Um, if you've ever watched the movie Uncut Gems, Adam Sandler places a correlated parlay, which would never happen in real life. It's not like, could they not have found someone in the gambling world that could have just like watched this and said, maybe we should make this a little bit more realistic. Anyways, I, dig I digress. Okay, what was the correlated parlay? Uh, it, I believe it was, uh, it was definitely Kevin Garnett to win the tip for the Celtics, the Celtics to win the game. But there was also something in between there, like Celtics to cover first half or something like that, or first quarter first score 20 points, something like that, where it was like tied to the game outcome as well. 
Um, but that's an example of a correlated parlay, right? Like if 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 one outcome is very much tied to another one, and and these pop up here and there, you can maybe capitalize on it a few times, but it's not something that long term is going to exist. Um, but yeah, I mean that that would be a, a good example. Yeah. So some slight examples are like underdog and the under favorite yep. and the over because obviously with a bigger uh, as you scale like if you're going to take alabama and college football minus 50 and the under is 54 you really shouldn't be parlaying alabama minus 50 and the under 54 you should Correct. try to be parlaying you know team facing alabama plus 50 um so that's like one, one example there i uh, also wanted to touch upon like for true professionals who are trying to maximize edges and get more money down a parlay is a great way to do that as well so beautiful that's one of the ones i wanted to talk about i'm glad you brought it up yeah so if you have a big edge on something let's say like a smaller a smaller market college basketball game and you know a player's injured and the line's going to move like four or five points uh you could go around and essentially parlay that game uh, or even open a few like open parlays if your if your sports book allows you to do that, and just keep those sitting there. Uh, it's a way to get more down without um, appearing like you're crushing the the book. So even just at that point, if two of the three legs of the parlay are just coin flips, and that one has like a twenty percent edge on it, then your total parlay is plus expected value. It blends in well. Uh, hitting parlays is also a great way to keep your accounts alive, whether it be like offshore paperhead or uh, the legal books in the US right now is hitting parlays um, when you're when a trader is going to review your account, likely what they're going to be reviewing it for is like, ah, this guy's playing parlays, he's probably losing better based on you know the stuff we just touched upon. So playing parlays in your account also despite the fact that you you may have a slight edge in a uh, slight negative edge in there. Uh, could help keep your account alive and could help mask a lot of the plus EV stuff you're playing in your account. So here's other ways in which a pro might utilize uh, a parlay and not necessarily just write it off and say, yeah, I never bet parlay. So like personally, I, I bet parlays all the time. Well, I mean, just to add to that, Johnny, I can circumvent some of my betting limits by placing parlays. Um, that's both offshore with a couple of sites and PPH where I might be limited to like my agent, for example, on a PPH might limit me to $250 a bet, but only apply it to straight wagers. So now I still have my plus EV sides, but I can put them in in a $1,000 parlay instead of the $250 straight bet. Now, obviously, I you know, I need both of those bets to win now or three or four or five, however many in that parlay. But if you put two plus EV sides into a parlay, that parlay is plus EV. As long as the odds are dynamic and they're not fixed. Odds. As long as the parlay odds are, yeah, as long as they're giving you fair parlay odds. That's something else to check. Like if, if you're putting in plus 100, plus 100, your book should be giving you plus 300. If they're giving you yes. plus 260, then you take a hike, obviously, like don't don't play there. So all this is you need fair parlay odds, which a lot of books do offer. Uh, one other thing I'll add, you know, just as a watch out, something I've been noticing lately is um, DraftKings and FanDuel, they allow you to add like so many different legs of things to a parlay. They call it same game parlay. Um, but they all have certain odds or prices attached to them. But when you put them in the parlay, those prices change. So they allow correlated parlays, mm -hmm. but they'll adjust the odds to reflect a fair price or obviously below fair. So like fair plus VIG on that. So in DraftKings, for example, you can write a, a two-team parlay right now that is, um, you know, Derrick Henry under one and a half touchdowns and Derrick Henry, no touchdown scored. You can parlay both of those, but on DraftKings, they're going to run that through their software and they're going to give you the, just the odds of the, uh, the no touchdown. Right. So you're not actually going to get the parlay, but it'll show in there. So if you add three or four more legs, it might look like you have all this correlation, but just actually calculate the odds. Cause they're, they're going to give you, um, reflective odds of the, if you're parlaying, you know, a guy's under, catches like under receptions with under yards with no touchdown, you can do that, but you're going to get a significantly reduced odds. One of my biggest pet peeves um, is kind of like a classic tout tactic of posting a huge parlay winner. But I love the guys who post the ones that are like fixed odds at a Vegas book where it's like they're getting nowhere close to the price that they would ever get at. It's like those, those old parlay cards, right? It's like bet four and this is the payout, no matter what you pick. And like, unless you're ta really taking advantage of a line it, there, that's like way off market, stay a line, which in a lot of cases, the images I've seen people weren't. It's hilarious to me that anyone would ever play those. Um, so that's one thing just to be aware of, like those parlay cards 
fixed odds. I'm not saying you can't get an edge off of those, but the line would have had to move so significantly in some cases that they're almost never offering you what is fair value on, on that parlay. So that's one thing, but definitely circumventing betting limits. Like that's not a problem for any, for everyone. And it's actually a, a problem for just the minority of people, but a lot of offshores will do the same thing. You're going to, you're going to get limited if you're winning, especially if you're winning over a longer time period and you're betting uh, larger sums of money, but you can kind of work around that with parlays. So just be aware of that as a lot of sites um, will just limit you on your straight bets, but because they're holding so highly on parlays, they still allow that to continue uh, and you can beat them. And honestly, as someone who's consulted for a lot of offshores in the past, there are some very smart traders. There are some that honestly, they don't know well enough that uh, you like they'll just see you playing parlays and think that this person does not have an edge. So it's certainly a good way to keep accounts. Um, I'm not saying it's a guarantee, but it's if you do have an edge and you want to kind of try to mislead and keep your accounts as much as possible, it's a good way to go about it. Okay. So, uh, yeah, great. Sorry. One more thing, Rob. Well, here's, I, I, I want to just tell a random story. I mean, we got a few more minutes here to fill, but I don't remember, you know what our local book is now, John, you're like the big one. I'm not going to give the name off uh, on air, but when I first started betting, um, in high school, probably when I was in the first year of university, I had the biggest edge that someone could ever have, I think, betting. And, and I'll, I'll share it with people just in case like it, it still exists anywhere, which I highly, highly doubt, but maybe it is something that exists somewhere. I noticed um, probably as I was putting like the rest of my available balance at a, on, on a parlay as I was a losing better sometime. Let's just say I had $50.33 left in my account. I put it on a parlay to try to win my money back. It would lose. I'd still have $0.33 cents available in my account as credit, and the parlay was rounded off to $50. So I started noticing that, okay, they're rounding. So I went through my account history. Every single parlay was rounded up or down to the nearest dollar. The next day, and for approximately four or five months after the fact, I started placing six game round robin parlays every single day with a risk of $1.49. Because every time it lost, it would round down to a dollar. But every time it won, it would give me the payout on what it was supposed to pay for a dollar and 49 cents. Literally the biggest edge I ever had in my life. I was not good enough of a better at that time to like, truly be parlaying all these plus EV wagers. But the reality is I could have parlayed all coin flips and still had positive expected value because of that rounding error. And that's actually not- For $1, for $1. That's actually not entirely true. Let, let, let Let me tell you this. It was originally, the minimum on my account was $2. And after a month, I went to my agent and said, I want to bet on some horse racing, but I don't want to bet $2 minimums. Can you lower my account to a dollar minimums? So I got it down to a dollar to increase the edge even more. But I've never seen it since then. The thing is, like, my agent never mentioned it to me or anything like that. Like, never gave me grief about it, even when he was paying me out regularly. So I think it was shut down from, like, Costa Rica or whatever, when somebody probably started noticing, you know... Another good piece of advice, if you have an edge like this, probably don't tell everybody you know about it because before you know it, there's like 30 of your friends betting into the same PPH doing the exact same thing. But, oh man, what, like I would give, do you know what I would give to go back to those days and be able to still do that? Still, I, by far the biggest edge. You're going to make like 20 bucks. No, you, you, so when you can take eight games now, you can take. 10 games and start putting them into combos of two, three, four, five, six. Okay, when those even for one dollar, think think about like I, I actually so don't what, even what's have your, a, what's your expected what's your expected value like on a total week doing that expected edge. I, I, in absolute I, dollars. So actually, it's I'll, I'll come back to you next week with what that is because I can't calculate it on the spot, but it's it's actually quite substantial. 
because you can do it over and over. It's not like I have Fair to enough. do that. So you're saying you could put in like 10 of those per day. You're not just 100%, like, you're, you put 10, yeah. okay, I see. I see. My, so my account, you're obviously on a small edge. Like if I exported this to a CSV, it would be like 100,000 rows in a week. Like it was the most, I couldn't even keep track of my own personal no, accounts. No, no. And like, anybody looking at that probably thought you're the biggest square of all time. They're like, exactly. He's just a dollar better betting round robins. Like let, let, pay him out of 600 a week. <laughs> he won this week. Uh, you know what? That's fair enough. I, I, I appreciate that. I did a similar thing. Um, I used to bet. So I used to take advantage of some rounding too. But uh, it wasn't to that extent. Like I would always put in bets on the 49, 49 cents so they could go down. Um, like I would even sometimes bet like the same bets a few times so I could take advantage of it twice. Again, this is like small time stuff. When I was just starting up in, in high school, trying to like betting 10 bucks a game and trying to like move my line from minus 20 to minus 10, which it's probably I, still wouldn't overcome the VIG, but it was a lot of fun. I was... Yeah, I was such a shitty better when I had the biggest edges of my life. Like either I was a shitty better or I was like really undercapitalized working like a $35,000 a year job as a radio producer and and like really wondering what I could afford to bet at that time. Like it's really unfortunate, the timing, but um, oh well. I mean, I guess this is negative Rob coming out again one more time here. I've, I've done fairly well, but... Uh, still look back on a few of those years being like, I'm going to add one more story. I don't know if I ever talked about this. Sorry, I'm rambling on here, but it's making me think of this, this one skin. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. So this one skin never had any idea about European daylight savings time. Different than North American daylight savings time. So one day a year, I always knew the results of horse races an hour before the book was grading them. Like they still had them on the board for an hour. So the first time I, I like you get to this point where, and, and I'm like basically 20 years old, maybe r- roughly around there. I'm not dealing with like, like I'm a kid, I'm betting small amounts. No one's going to break my legs or anything like that for, for this type of edge. But that's not the way you think when you're younger, like you're sort of dealing with kind of like mob or connected people when you're betting through a lot of the locals and you're like, what, like, should I, what can I get away with here without sounding the alarms? And I remember the first year I did it, I won like 800 bucks. Um, and I, I, I only like made myself win on a couple races and I put in a lot of losing bets, but I still remember going to collect my money that week. And the guy's like, you know, horse racing, like uh, what made you bet horse racing? And it like really caught me off guard I was like, oh, you know, like my, my dad gave me some tips and, uh, you know, I got some, I bought some picks or something. I was just like rambling on the spot. And he's like, oh, interesting or whatever. And this converse, the same conversation happened for like three years. I think it lasted three years, but it, I progressively was winning more. I think the most I won off it one year was like 6,000, which to me was a lot of money at the time. And I was like dripping sweat going to pick up that money. Like I'm, I'm just thinking in my head, I'm like, this is the third year. These guys are on to me. Like they're going to kick the shit out of me. I have like my, my shitty mobile phone at the time, like my Motorola razor or whatever in my pocket. Like my buddy Gino is, is I already have the number dialed out so I could just like hit send in case anything goes down. Like I'm telling people beforehand of where I'm going to pick up the money. And like, if you don't hear from me, the the most egregious overreaction to like what is now now I know is an inconsequential amount of money to, to one of these books, but like for me at the time and, um, man, well, I, I think to myself now, like, why didn't I just, why didn't I milk that for so much more? But the problem was after the first year I did this, like the idiot that I am, I told all my buddies about it. So the second year, everybody's doing this. And by the third year, I know like 50 of my friends that are all betting horse racing on the same di- same day looks a little suspicious, but the the old PPH days, man. Whew. Dude, that I mean, I mean, what you probably should have done was like just consistently bet horse racing for the whole year, like couple races at every time, like like small small bet or even even bigger bets, and then like the week leading up, like try to bet a lot more, get in the red, like ten k, and then so, take and then take them for like forty. That's probably. Well, the, 
you you know like you 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 laughingly joked last week that I'm a bit of a degen. I am, but I was much more of a degen at that time. And like I was definitely betting horse racing when I was bored. Like if I had nothing to do, I was betting horse racing at that time. And like I'm looking at you're just betting for fun. No, no, I'm not even watching the races. Like I'm just refreshing Equibase, which is like the website where you could see the results. And literally I'm just hammering the refresh button like over and over and over to get results on these races. Um, and sometimes the actual account itself would update before the Equibase site. Um, and I, I'd know the results without having even known. But yeah, so like it wasn't uncommon that I bet horse racing, but it was just like, I wonder if the guy ever looked back. To, it's like the same day every year, pretty much same time. I always took him, took him for a bit on horse racing. And um, man, if I... Like, I really should have capitalized on these edges a lot more than I did, man. That was, that's just like, I laugh. Because at that time, I thought I was like, I thought I was a genius. Like, uh, like I, I, I was convincing myself that I extracted the most value possible without them noticing. Like, I, I really was very confident that what I was doing was uh, like, I'm, I'm going to get away with this. And like, just this is the perfect amount. And now I think about it and I'm like, oh my God, what an idiot you are, Rob. So, oh man. As well that I'll have to share another time. But uh, yeah, awesome stuff. Okay, so this is uh, this was episode 10. I think next week we're going to bring on another guest and uh, we'll have some other, uh, some other cool topics for uh, discussion. Yeah, we'll finalize, uh, we'll finalize that this week, just waiting to hear back. But um, we'll do like a little sneak peek on Twitter because I, I think that this guest doesn't have a large following, but will have a lot of interesting things to say. I hope so, at least. And I think that there's a lot of people that would like to ask him or her some questions as well. So um, we'll get the name circulating a little bit beforehand, see if we can get some, some quote-unquote fan questions uh, because... I, I, I do think that this this one will be an interesting one. So um, stay tuned. We'll post when we have confirmation and um, and we can hopefully get some interesting stuff out of them next week. All right. Uh, we'll see you guys all next week. Like, subscribe, rate, and review five stars.